This is Pastor Scott Hidman from Clovis Hills Community Church, and you are listening to the Clovis Hills Podcast. You are about to hear from one of our teaching pastors here at Clovis Hills. I want to encourage you to download the Clovis Hills app where you can follow along with today's notes, submit a prayer request, or give to the ministry of this church. I hope today's message encourages you and draws you closer to the heart of God. So, it's so great to be back up here. Um, I, I, I just want to preface what we're going to say with uh, something that I, I don't, probably don't say often enough. I love this church. I love this church. I mean, you guys are just tremendous. And, and though I probably would never say it to his face since I'm up here and he's not, I love Sean. I, I, I have deep affection for Sean Beatty. I really do. He is doing such an awesome job. And he, he's just, he's a man of God that's not consumed with his own uh, giftedness or position. And he just loves Jesus and he keeps leading others to that. And it's just so great. You know, some of you know uh, that my wife and I have had an unusual, hopefully, <laughs> an unusual challenge for the last four and a half months. And one of the things that has been so impressive uh, about this church, uh, when we've been able to come uh, on during this last four and a half months, my, my wife, uh, this is her birthday weekend, and uh, my daughter was going to be visiting a friend in Arizona, and Shirley said I could drive down there and get to see Suzanne and, and the grandkids. And so I gave her the weekend off. Isn't that big of me? I think that's, yeah. I said, you're free. So uh, at any rate, uh, but when we've come in, we, we, we don't usually get into the auditorium until the, the worship is over, not because we don't like the worship, but because so many of you will intercept us in the hall and you want to hug on us and tell us how you're, and it's just, I just can't tell you, I wish every uh, hurting family had the kind of love that we feel from this church. It's just overwhelming and deeply satisfying. And uh, so, so, you know, I, I, I feel your love and I want you to know how much uh, I, I love you back, which sort of brings the question, at least that came to my mind, how do we know when someone loves? How do you know if somebody loves? Um, I'm the one in our family quick to say I love you, and Shirley's whole thing is, uh, well, show it. You know, it's like words are cheap. And uh, so how do you know that someone loves you and is not just saying cheap words? Well, I, here's what I think. I think love is costly. I, I think true love gives. And true, true love, uh, you know, the kind of love that God has and, and he wants for all of us, and I think many of you have this for your you know, your family members, the one you love, you, you, you pay a price for the one you love because love gives. You just can't help yourself. Uh, I know in my case, my, my son John, he cost me tens of thousands of dollars over the years. Anybody know what I mean about having kids that cost money? And here's the thing, when you love, it, you, you're not really counting that cost because love wants to give. In fact, the, the joy of love is seeing the beloved thrive or, or, or put back on a, on a pedestal or put back on a right path. That, that, that's where it comes from. So I think that, that love, real love, God's kind of love, you know, pays a price. It, it pays the price of finances sometimes. It pays the price of time invested. 
uh, where you, you maybe you leave, you, you cheat work a little bit to make sure that the family uh, is knowing that, that you love. I, I was thinking this morning, uh, my dad had to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. That's how he covered all the bills. And his faithfulness, I'll, I'll never, I mean, I'm a recipient of the benefits of his faithfulness. But the very fact that he couldn't be at all my games or so forth, that has, you know, so what I'm saying is my mom, I felt more love for her because of the time invested in me and her words of affirmation. I think love pays attention. You know, so it doesn't pay money or pay time. It pays attention. It focuses on the one it loves. And, and in that sense, I think God loves us enormously but if you ask the question, well, how would I know that God loves me? Because here's the truth. Religions that say God loves are borrowing from Jesus Christ's revealed example of what he was like. There's not a religion that, if you say God is a loving God, you're borrowing it from Jesus is the one who demonstrated that. And his love, among you compare all the religions, no other religion has a costly love. Only Jesus pays a costly price for those he loves. He doesn't just stand in heaven going, I love you, now obey. He comes down among the broken and gives his life for us. So how do we know that God loves us? Well, here's what the Bible says. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the costliest price. And this is something I hope you'll grab hold of. No other religion, no other God has sacrificed as much for his beloved to demonstrate his love. And uh, it's just such a powerful thing. So today we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, which commemorates, if you will, the, the penultimate example in human history of God's love the day that Christ died on the cross for my sins and for yours, for the sins of the whole world. And this is what we celebrate today. And Christ left this with us for us to uh, remember from time to time and go back to the, the ultimate example of God's love, the demonstration, the proof. So I've asked Brennan to read to us today as a, a starting point what Paul says about what he learned about the Lord's Supper and how he taught people to take the Lord's Supper and what it means. And so if you're able to stand, I would like you to stand in honor of God's word. Brendan? For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. And you may be seated. So this last phrase is kind of interesting because I got an insight that I hadn't seen before, and I've done lots of Lord's suppers. But uh, this passage says that whenever we uh, partake, whenever we you know, eat the bread, drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. So 
What this does is it looks back. It helps us remember. And that's what Jesus says. Do this in remembrance of me. So it looks back at when Jesus was the Lamb of God dying for the sins of the world. But it doesn't stop there. And this is the part I hadn't caught before. He says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it not only looks back, but it looks in anticipation for when Jesus will come again. And when Jesus comes next time, he won't be the Lamb of God. He'll be the Lion of God. And that's a very big difference. Uh, you know, lambs are, well, they're, they're just not ferocious. You know, they don't name professional teams after, after lambs. You know, there's, you, know you, you, want, you want your icon of the team to be something strong or someone you ought to worry about, like, like the Giants. Not like the Dodgers, like the Giants. Oh, too many Dodger fans have joined, I see. Pastor Scott is getting to people. Don't trust him. Don't trust him. But you understand what I mean. Lamb is just not, it's not a moniker that you put out there. Now, here's the difference, though. If I said, uh, by the way, lamb is not even a sheep. A, a lamb is a baby, a, a young one, a, a youngling. It could be a sheep or a goat in, 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 while it's still young. So when, when we say that Jesus is the Lamb of God, we're saying he uh, took on a persona of being, if you will, powerless, and that's what, that's, in that sense, he died for us. But now if I said to you, I'm powerless, there's several of you out here that could whip me, and I'm just talking about the women. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm skinny-armed. I'm not, you know, I, there's not, not a lot of power. So, so if I act lamb-like, it's like, well, you're just being smart because you don't want to, you know, get pushed around. But Jesus isn't that. Jesus was originally the lion. And both of these images, by the way, are throughout the Old Testament. So as the lion, what Jesus has to do is he has to take off his lion robes and put on his lamb robes. By the way, he said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. You remember that? That was Jesus. Beware of wolves in sheep. Dangerous people, dangerous, powerful, uh, evil people dressed like or pretending to be sheep. Jesus is the lion dressed in lamb's clothing. He's disguising himself as, as weak, but he's not. He could have called 10,000 angels down to get him off the cross, but he stayed as a lamb to pay the penalty for my sins and your sins. And that's what we're going uh, to study here today. So let me give you some fill-in-the-blanks, and there is some notes in your program if you'd like to follow along. I always encourage you to follow along, fill in the notes, because it lets you know how near the end I am. And if you're like me, you want to know when are we getting out. <clears throat> so number one, the Lord's Supper looks back to the Lamb of God in the Passover meal. In other words, it looks pa it, it, it does it in this, but it actually looks beyond that to the Passover meal. You say, why, why would I say that? Because the occasion at which Jesus was gathered with his disciples in the upper room the night before he was crucified, the night he was betrayed and the night before he was crucified, they were celebrating the Passover meal together. And a lot of people, uh, we don't realize uh, how, that, how that works. In fact, some of the language of the New Testament, if you've been in church forever, you don't even think about it. That'd be me. 
But if, you've, if you don't go to church or haven't been to church, then when you hear me say he's the Lamb of God, it's like, eh, could you come up with a stronger, you know, let's call him the lion or something, you know, something else. But the reason he's called the Lamb of God is back to the Passover meal that was the occasion where he began. He took an ancient tradition, the Passover meal, and he transformed it into the Lord's Supper. He gave it new meaning. Now, I want to talk to you about this. Here's, Here's what John the Baptist said. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you'd done Passovers your whole life, then when he says this, it's like, oh, wow. In, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. I didn't realize, but the New Testament actually acknowledges he is our Passover lamb. So what's the story on the Passover, in case you're not familiar with it? Well, the story of the Passover was that the uh, Israelites were slaves in Egypt, probably building pyramids, frankly, and uh, Pharaoh did not want to let him go because he had cheap labor by the millions. And so when Moses came and said, let my people go, uh, Pharaoh said, no way. And then, then came 10 plagues, of which the last was the Passover. So the first nine plagues, Pharaoh kind of gets worn down, and he'll say, okay, now you can go. And then he wakes up the next morning, nope, 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 changed my mind. I can't let these free, this free labor go. But then the 10th plague comes which is the death of the firstborn. And Moses tells the people of Israel, here's how I want you to prepare. I want every family to, to get a lamb, so a young a youngling, a young sheep could be a young goat, and I want you have one per family, or if you're not wealthy enough to have one per family, then a few families get together, and so you all have a lamb. And on Passover evening, I want you to kill the lamb, and we're going to roast it, and we're going to eat it with unleavened bread, meaning uh, kind of getting rid of sin, leaven as being a, a sense of sin, and be ready to take off, because right after this, the Egyptians are going to let us go. And then what he said would happen is that the death angel would go throughout all of Egypt that night, and he would take the firstborn from every flock and from every family, except for those who were gathered together for Passover meals. Now, here's the one unique. This is, this is so fabulous to me because this is about 2,000 years before Christ. Could have been 1,800, 1,700, but let's just round it off. About 2,000 years before Christ, which could be correct, uh, Moses institutes a, a way for, to, to escape death, and it has a lamb in it, all in not, not only just to take care, it's really the birth of the nation of Israel as they escape uh, Egypt, but it also has this prophetic element where it's a picture of the coming Christ. Because here's what he says to do. I want you to take some of the blood from the lamb before you cook it and eat it that night. I want you to take the blood and I want you to put it on both, take some blood, put it on both doorposts. So if you have a door, front door, you put some here, and some here, and put it on the lintel above. Do you see the picture? That's the sign of the cross. It's boom, 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 boom. 
2,000 years before Christ, there's a picture of Christ in the Passover meal. And this is the meal they're taking. Now, what happened that night as the death angel went? Well, when the death angel came to where he saw the blood of the lamb over, the, over those doorposts, he passed over those houses. They escaped the death that would have come to everyone else by having the blood of the lamb. Do you see the imagery? Now, in that sense, Jesus has gathered his disciples together in the upper room, which we were at in Jerusalem just not that long ago. And, and he gathers them in the upper room and in the, in the midst of a Passover meal, and it's so fascinating, whereas the lamb is the, kind of the core of the ancient, and they've done it every year, by the way. Every, you know, every year for 2,000 years, they've, this, this nation has done this Passover meal where every family's together and so forth. So they gather together, and in the New Testament, it never mentions the lamb. You know why? Because he was the lamb. He was taking the place of the Passover lamb. He has become our Passover lamb. And in his shed blood, God passes over the judgment that we would rightly deserve for our sins and our brokenness and our weakness. What a, what a powerful thing. And then Jesus, yeah, that's worthy of a, of a clap. Then Jesus says, okay, now I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And, 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 and he says, as, as Paul got it, he says, now you, every time you do this, you know, it's, uh, it says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now here, here this is, this give you an idea of, of how Christ was the lion pretending to be a lamb. When he said this, there was no broken body. This is, I don't know, 12 hours before. I, I mean, I don't know the exact time frame. Uh, 18 hours before his body is broken. He's giving them a picture in a Passover setting that he's going to break his body and he's going to spill his blood and he wants you to do it in remembrance of me. They're taking it for the first time going, a broken body? I'm not quite following here, but okay, we'll, we'll go along. But within 12 to 18 hours, they knew exactly what he meant, exactly what he meant. And I just think that's, it, it's such a powerful thing. Uh, I, while I'm on this, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to just make a comment that I, I think hasn't been talked about enough, and I, so I want to comment on it. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. He is really the lion dressed up or masquerading or disguised as a lamb because he's going to act lamb-like until he has died for every one of your sins and mine. And uh, one of the truths that uh, imagery, images that I, I grew up in, in the church that I came from, was this almost con seeming contradiction in God's character, and I have it in your notes, that God is holy and just. Really, that's who God is. He is holy and just, and therefore he must punish sin. If God doesn't punish sin, who will? And the answer is, there would be no other one. A mafia character could get, get away with it for his whole life. OJ could get away with it for his whole life. Whoever you are that are hiding your sins, we could get away with it for our whole life unless God is holy and just. And so then com comes the, the issue, well, why hasn't God just destroyed everyone already? 
I mean, how would you go about getting rid of evil and chaos and bitterness and fighting? Just wipe all of us out and it'll all go away. By the way, for those of you that are uh, movie nerds, this would be like in the movie Avengers Infinity War when Thanos just sort of has all the rings of power and he just does this and all the superheroes just turn to dust. I mean, if God did that tomorrow, there'd be no more suffering or evil. It'd all go away because he got rid of all the people that have been creating all the evil. Now, some of you out there are going, Thanos, what the heck are you talking about? I said that in faith that there are two or three Marvel Universe nerdies out here that would get what I'm talking about. Okay, I knew you were there. So for the rest of you, you can go home and ask your young, uh, you know, the young ones in your family what the heck the pastor was talking about there. By the way, we have to wait another week or two before we get to find out, are they dead? Are they coming back? Well, okay, well, another week or two, we'll get to see the movie and see what happens. At any rate, but God is love, and he doesn't want to punish us. So how do these contradictory elements in God's nature hang together with any consistency? And that's where the beauty and the power of the cross and of what we're going to celebrate today, this is where it really shines. Because in the cross, God remains just because he punishes the sin for everyone that doesn't want to carry their own weight. In other words, there's two ways to, to cover your sin. When you die, you could stand before the judgment seat of God when Christ comes back as a lion, and he can judge you, and you can die for your own sins. Or you can take advantage of the Passover picture and the Lord's Supper commemorating Christ's death on the cross, and you could say, Lord, I don't deserve it, but I ask you, and I put my trust that your love is great enough that you will let me into your family. And when you do that, Christ has the ability to pass over your sins at the final judgment. And God can never be accused of being unjust because he'll say, hey, my son paid the ultimate cost. Everybody's sin will be paid for. Now, I'll tell you why I think this is important. I think in today's world, America especially, uh, we talk about, and I, I, you know, it comes out of Hollywood and everywhere now, that, you know, that God is love or he's a loving God, uh, if you believe in God at all. And uh, it's not that that's untrue, but what we have missed is that see, it feels to me like our society increasingly either forgets or minimizes the holiness of God. And I'm here to tell you, when he comes back as a lion, the holiness and justice of God will be crystal clear. And that's not when you want to find out whose team you're on. You want to find out before that. And I will say this, you want to make sure everybody in your family knows Christ before that time. So let me read to you a passage that isn't read very often, partially because it's kind of dense, but it's in Romans chapter 3. So I'm going to just see if I can unpack this for you briefly. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. So God presents Christ as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. Through the shedding of his blood, it's costly atonement. He doesn't just say the word, he pays the price. To be received by faith. And there's the key. 
Christ has died for all of us. In fact, he's died for the sins of the whole world. But you must receive it by faith. He's a gentleman. He's not just going to barge into the front door of your life and tell you how. You actually acknowledge that you've been running your own life. That's the essence of sin. And have behaved less than what you know is right. And then you have to ask him, trust him to come into your life. You know, sometimes I, I hear people still say this word faith in the Bible, sometimes translated believe or believe in. You know, if you believe in God, uh, I'm going to chase a rabbit here for a second. Believe in doesn't mean what people in the culture think it means. For instance, when my mother was raising me out in the, out in the country, we had this uh, garbage bin out in the back that they would either probably burn or haul off every so often. And from the back door to there, it was dark and scary. And she would say, I want you to take the garbage and put it in the bin. Now, she was a strict mom and a loving mom. And if I had said to her, Steve, pick up the garbage, take it out back. Mom, I believe you exist. She would have said, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, you better believe I mean what I'm t- telling you, and you better get your butt out there and put the garbage where I said. Mom, I believe you're a love. You hear how that? Well, then what did she mean? <laughs> she meant believe what I say. Trust my words. If you don't take it out, my mom was smart. I won't spank you because I don't spank hard enough, but I will tell your dad, and then it'll really get angry around here. And that was part of my dad's role. So believe in really means trust. By the way, we we use this all the time. If I were to say you have to believe in yourself, I'm not saying do you believe you exist. See, God exists whether you believe he exists or not. That's not even the issue. The issue is do you trust in the goodness of God, the love of God, and the holiness and justice of God that he will be the final judge. And if you do, Christ is the only answer for that conundrum. It's God's beautiful gospel solution to give you time to grow up, to become like Christ because you desire to become the best person you can possibly be, not the person who just does what they want for the rest of their life. Anyway, he goes on and he says, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness, his holiness, his justice, because in his forbearance, that is his patience, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And aren't you glad that, you know, the first time you screw up, God just didn't say, oh, that's it for you. I'm going to play Thanos. Zip. And you just turn it. Oh, aren't you glad? He is overlooking sins of people. Why? Because he wants to give them time to come to Christ. He wants them to give them time to repent of their sin, running their own life, and give their life to Christ and invite his forgiveness to cover their sins. That's the only reason. It's his justice at work. And he goes on to say this. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness, his holiness and justice, at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who put their faith in Jesus. So so no one, not even Satan, will be able to say, God, you're not fair. Say, oh, I disagree. Every person's sins will end in death. And I have made an offer to 
everyone that they can come and partake freely of what Christ has done or they can partake freely of the consequences of their own sin. It's offered to all. He is ultimately just and he's justified in forgiving you because Christ has already died and it could be in your place if you'll just put your trust in that power of the cross to soften our hearts, to admit our faults, and then to humbly go about becoming more loving and Christ-like for the rest of our life. At any rate, I, I, I'm here to tell you, I think our nation's chaos is partially there because so many people, they've stopped believing that there's a higher power that's going to make it right. And so it's now all about individual power. And it's becoming increasingly chaotic as splinter groups begin to rise up and say, well, my way's right, and the rest of you are whatever. And I'm just here to tell you, we've got to be very careful about this. Be very careful. Uh, if we keep bickering, we're going to tear ourselves apart. In fact, I'll say this, and then I'll shut up about all this. Do you know what the Russians are really doing leading up to our elections? They put stuff on Facebook that will inflame the left to hate the right, and they will put stuff in social media that will inflame the right to hate the left. Because they don't care. They just want us torn apart. Who else does that? Oh, yeah, Satan. Well, I wonder if there's a connection. Hmm. The only way to put it all back together is to stop making excuses or blaming the other guy and admitting I've got to become the person. Or as Michael Jackson said, let's work on the man in the mirror, not just everybody else. Amen. In the power of Jesus. Number two, the Lord's Supper looks forward to the Lion of God at the second coming. The Lord's Supper looks forward, looks forward to the Lion of God coming at the second coming. Says here, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At that point, you'll no longer uh, need the lamb. You'll either be in or you'll be out. Uh, by the way, the song that, that we sang at the end, and I think they're going to sing after the Lord's Supper, says that when Jesus took that breath in the tomb, and, and I love how Sean does that. He did it last night, and he just did it for you. Can you imagine Jesus, the dead body, laying on that cold stone in that cave? And all of a sudden, <gasps> and the first air comes back in. The Lion of Judah has shown up. Now, that's powerful stuff. But see, he didn't, he didn't throw his weight around there. He gave 40 days of, of perfection. Now, why didn't he throw his weight around yet? He's giving time for everyone who will to repent of their self-will and receive the forgiveness of God and turn their will over to him. That's the only reason. But when he comes back in the second coming, he'll come as a lion, not as a lamb. Look, look at how this is going to be great. Uh, two passages out of Revelation, then I'll, uh, we'll move to the Lord's Supper. In Revelation 5, 5, he says, do not weep. So for all of you who have uh, you know, resentments and and maybe brokennesses you can't fix and, and regrets. He says, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who's that? That's Jesus. The root of David. Now, who comes out of David's root? Who is, who is the descendant of David? That's Jesus. He gives you two Old Testament prophetic titles. 
He says, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has triumphed. And at that point, he fulfills what the end of Revelation says. And I'll read this one to you too. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Some of you have some broken hearts. Jesus, as the lion, will fix that. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, who do you think that is? That's Jesus. I am making everything new. He will come back and he will set things right. Uh, here's how Tim Keller says this. I love this. He says, everything sad is going to come untrue. I just love that. Now, to appreciate it, you have to be a little bit of a nerd. So here we go. I'm going to wear my nerd hat again. Where did you get that idea? Lord of the Rings, chapter 4, book 6. <laughs> I know. You should be impressed. <clears throat> Sam Gamgee, when they've when they've defeated and they've thrown the ring away, the ring of power, Sam is with uh, Gandalf. And Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. And then he thinks, because he'd just gone through that horrific end, and he goes, but then again, I thought I was dead. And then he asks a very precious, <laughs> this is so, I just, my hat's off to J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a lifetime Catholic and a deep believer in the power of God. He, Sam says this, is everything sad going to come untrue? If you're a believer in Christ, the answer is yes. If you're not a believer in Christ, uh, I don't know how to answer that exactly. So here's how, here's how Keller summarizes that, that idea from Tolkien. Everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. That even your heart's deepest sorrows will somehow be turned into glory when the Lion of Judah comes back. I hunger for the day. How about you? I hunger for the day. For all the people that we think are getting away with it, for all the injustice that's in the world, there will come a day of reckoning and all of that evil can be unwound if you take the hope of the lamb waiting on the power of the lion. So now I'd like to invite the uh, team of, of uh, servers to come up, and even the, the worship team, to come up and get set as we start to serve the Lord's Supper. And as we do, uh, I'm going to take uh, kind of my privilege since I'm leading this is kind of old school Clovis Hills, and so many of you will know this, and some have seen it and some have not. But we're going to start with a whole loaf. Why? Because Jesus' body, on the night that they had the Lord's Supper, his body was whole. It wasn't for another 12 or 18 hours that his body was broken. And it says on that night, starting with a whole loaf, it says he broke it, now, how do you go about breaking bread? Well, I don't, they don't talk about anything with, with knives or forks. It's a violent action. It requires force to tear at and divide. And here's what I would like to offer to you. 
uh, you're going to be invited to come forward and be served and take the elements back to you, and then we'll, we'll take them together in just a minute. But I'm going to ask you to come forward, and in order to get your piece of the bread, and I want you to do this with understanding. I want to try to give more meaning to the Lord's Supper than some of you have had before. I'm going to ask that you grab it and tear your piece off. Why? As an admission that it was your sins that tore at the Christ's body. It wasn't just the generic world sins. My sins tore at his body. And so I'm going to ask that you grab and violently tear off the piece. Now, I need to say this for some of you because we've got some pretty big sinners in here. How big a piece you tear off won't help you with your big pile of sin. And we didn't bring that much bread, just to be quite honest. So maybe you could just tear off a small piece and you and God and the people who live with you will know what a big sinner you are. But you're admitting that it was your sin that broke in his body. So that you're admitting sin, and when we take it, you'll be receiving the forgiveness of Christ offered to you. Hi, this is Pastor Sean Beatty from Clovis Hills Community Church. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Hey, I encourage you to download the Clovis Hills app on your phone. With the app, you can do all kinds of things like prayer requests, live notes, giving. I also encourage you to check out our uh, Facebook Live page if, if you want to watch online. You can come to our services live. They're Saturday nights at 6 o'clock, Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast.